Welcome to Smart Talk. I'm Scott Lamar. January is National Radon Action Month. Radon is an invisible, colorless, odorless, tasteless gas that can get into your home from the decay of naturally occurring uranium. More than 1,700 Pennsylvanians die of lung cancer caused by radon each year. In the mid-1980s, radon got a lot of attention. Not so much today, but that's what we're here to do today on our program. Joining us is Pennsylvania Secretary of the Department of Environmental Protection, or excuse me, Resources, John Quigley. I'm going back a few years and have to, I mean, that's not even a new name. (laughs) The Pennsylvania Department of Environmental Resources, John Quigley. Secretary Quigley, welcome to the program. Nice to be here. (laughs) Also joining us is Robert Lewis, Radiation Protection Program Supervisor in the Radon Division vision of DEP. Mr. Lewis, thank you for being with us today. Thank you, Scott. Pleasure to be here. Let me tell our listeners at home that if you have a question or comment about radon, give us a call, 1-800-729-7532, or send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. Secretary Quigley, I mentioned the mid-1980s. Radon actually was discovered, if you will, or made public here in Pennsylvania, in Berks County, kind of by accident. And at that time, I remember hearing a whole lot about it as this is something that uh, homes have to be tested if uh, the radiation levels, the radon levels were above recommendations, that there had to be changes. And we're going to talk about all those things. But as I said, it got a lot of attention in the mid-'80s when it really, when it really was discovered. 30 years later, why not, why not so much now? Uh, it, it's a puzzle. Uh, it, it's a serious health threat. As you said, over 1,700 Pennsylvanians die of lung cancer because of radon every year. And nationally, 20,000 Americans die because of lung cancer caused by radon. It, it is the leading cause of lung cancer after smoking. Uh, it, it's a big deal. And, but it's out of sight, out of mind. It's colorless, odorless, tasteless. You, you can't detect it any other way than by testing your home. Uh, folks, you know, live in their homes for a long time and think nothing. It becomes part of life, part of the routine. You don't think about the need or the the existence of a potential threat in your own home. So a, a lot of things kind of gravitate away from paying attention to, to issues like radon and all kinds of. We see it in, in all manner of issues related to public health. But because it's not getting as much attention, and just curious if you know the answer to this. How do we know 1,700 Pennsylvanians die of lung cancer that was caused by radon each year, 20,000 Americans? I'm going to ask Bob to answer that. Okay. I'll speak to that, Scott. That's just some estimates from the EPA. The the number that's most frequently cited is simply the 20,000 annual deaths U.S.-wide. But the EPA has been broken that down by statewide populations and concentrations that we deal with uh, in Pennsylvania. So they've come up with those estimates. Okay. But my question is... How do they know that those people who died of lung cancer, that radon was the cause of that lung cancer? I just got a letter on my uh, desk the other day, actually from John, to John as well, asking for death certificates that due to radon. And we don't see those. You can't distinguish a radon-induced lung cancer from a smoking-induced lung cancer. Actually, you can't even tell that it was due to smoking, basically. So once again, those are our best estimates. Uh, that this is due to radon alone. We know basically the, the doses of radiation that we receive from radon are very, very, very high. I imagine that when people are diagnosed with lung cancer, one of the first questions that is asked is, are you a smoker? And those questions probably are asked very early on. So a little bit of investigation, but you're right. I mean, I had a friend who died at age 31 of lung cancer, never smoked a day in his life. Maybe radon was an issue there. Uh, But 
Bob Lewis, let me ask you, uh, because we are, there probably are people that we are making familiar with this. What is radon? I kind of described it there, but what is it? Well, yeah, we described it a little bit. It's a, it's a radioactive gas. That's the, uh, the deleterious effects of it, the radioactivity. And we know radioactivity is a carcinogenic agent. It's naturally occurring. Uh, that gives us a wide distribution. And like John already said, the, the biggest problem from a public outreach point of view that we face is this colorless, odorless, tasteless. I've always said in many presentations I've given, I wish it was, you know, had to smell like a skunk or sulfur <laughs> com compounds. If, if that was the case and people smelled it in their basement, they would do something about it immediately. But this out of sight, out of mind, we're so busy today with all of our lives and our activities and schools and kids and so forth, it just does not, you know, register with folks that this is potentially, if it is in our homes, and we're in, we live in our homes and we're breathing this stuff in our homes, so over time, this, this stuff is impinging on the lungs, potentially increasing our risk of lung cancer over long-term exposures. Out of sight, out of mind is one of those things. Uh, it's, it's very unfortunate. You know, there may be people who would be surprised to know that when you say it's naturally occurring, that there is u uranium in the ground. And is it just uranium that is causing this, or what is causing this radiation? No, you're exactly right. It's uranium that's basically calling it, uranium-238 particularly. And it is distributed. It's not just in Pennsylvania. It's nationally, and it's worldwide. It's just very low concentrations, but the concentrations are high enough particularly in Pennsylvania, to produce the problems that we have in Pennsylvania. And we just have certain unique geologic formations that contain this, this uranium throughout the Commonwealth. Mm -hmm. What are some of those uh, unique uh, uh, geographic uh, things that we well, have? Well, one of them that's most, you, you referred to it early on in 1984, in the, the, the uh, Boyertown area, this geologic formation known as the Redding Prong. Right. That's this uh, geophysiographic province that extends roughly from Easton through Allentown, Bethlehem, then ends roughly in Redding. So that just has slightly higher concentrations of the uranium than some other parts of the uh, the Commonwealth. But there's sort of other areas. Central Pennsylvania is one of our bad areas. We just know that from the statistics that we collect, radon testing data, uh, southeastern PA in addition to the Lehigh Valley, and then probably some of the surrounding counties outside of Pittsburgh as well, I guess, are some of our worse areas. Mm -hmm. But we see high levels of radon in all 67 counties, unfortunately. Yeah. In fact, we have a map on our <laughs> website, WITF.org. It's actually taken, I think, from EPA, not your website, but maybe you have it uh, you know, re reprinted as well. But Secretary Quigley, uh, you know, Bob Lewis is, is correct in, from what I've seen is that if you look, I mean, this map has it, the county's red where uh, there is the most concentrations, where there are the most concentrations of uh, of radon. And all of central Pennsylvania, uh, Lancaster County, uh, Berks County, Lebanon County is a solid red. That, you know, this whole area uh, of the state, the radon is above recommendations. Yes. What are recommendations? Who makes the recommendations? What are they without getting too technical? Yeah. Well, if I, we could do that. I, we'll have to if I'm going to answer the question. Okay, okay. Now, the, the EPA says that the action level for uh, mitigation, you, you should mitigate your home if there is a presence of more than four picocuries per liter right, of radon in the air. Picocurie, obviously. That's, that's <laughs> a little tiny bit of radiation in the air okay. can do a lot of damage. But the, the number to remember is four. The action level is four. So if you get your home tested and it's four or above, you have to mitigate. And, and here in central Pennsylvania, it is absolutely pre prevalent. And I'll tell you from personal experience. Uh, I bought my home six years ago. It was tested. Didn't show up. The, the, the test was below the action level. At Bob's urging, when I came into DEP last year, he said, test your house. Come on, test your house. But Bob, it was hard. But test your house. 
Bob kept after me and, and gave me a rate on test kit. And sure enough, the level in my home was 30 picocuries per liter. Six years after I bought the house, I tested it again, and it was eight times the action level. So I, it was an unsafe condition. So I had to go and, and have my home mitigated. Now, it was easy. It, it was done in less than a day. Uh, but the, the simple fact of the matter is to go to a hardware store for about $20, you can get one of these test kits. You open it up. You let it sit in your basement for a week. Seal it up. Send it into a certified lab and get the results very quickly. It's as easy as possible. Uh, to get your home tested. It's it's very convenient. It's very inexpensive. It's something that everybody really needs to do. And I, again, I speak from personal experience. Don't take it for granted. Have your Test your home periodically, you know, every few years. It's just a smart thing to do. Well, what changed in six years? Hard to say. Uh, I bought the house in, in the spring of the year. Windows were open. Air was circulating. Uh, tested the house probably uh, in November of last year when there, there wasn't air circulating. Doors were closed, windows were closed, uh, so the house was sealed up better, and, and perhaps uh, that's why it, it picked it up. It could just be the natural variability. Uh, some, there's a little bit of luck involved as well here, so that's why periodic testing just makes sense. So, Bob, when the Secretary said that uh, you continued to uh, encourage him, uh, why? why? Why did you suspect that? You, it sounds like you suspected there could be an issue there. Well, I just know. I mean, I know from looking at these statistics almost every day that central Pennsylvania is particularly particularly bad. So I'm just, for you know, urging the secretary, particularly coming onto the agency newly, to make sure he had tested his house as well. Uh, you know, the other thing, unfortunately, with real estate transactions, another possibility is, is, you know, you don't know how the house was maintained with a previous owner, unfortunately. So there's there's several possibilities why it went from if it was indeed low to high now. Well, let's talk about that. Uh, you know, Secretary said that, uh, you know, the first test was done when windows were open, there was air circulating. That, could, that makes a difference? No, I don't think he said that. The testing should be always done under closed house conditions. Okay. I, I thought you said that it had been done. Well, it was done in the spring of the year when okay. All right. sometimes during the day there's air circulating. Oh, no, okay. We, we okay. did it the right way. All right. The second time. Right. right. I mean, there is, there is a seasonal variability associated with radon. Uh, generally, t generally, this time of the year it tends to be higher because of the cold weather outside has, has situation to cause it higher. Houses closed up tighter, windows, and so on and so forth. So that certainly is one, one aspect. All right, we have a phone call from Ed in, I believe it's Bartow. Ed, you're on the air. Yes, good morning. morning. Thank you for an interesting topic. Um, I'm here in Berks County, and I've lived here for a little over 30 years. I actually remember when radon was first found back in the 80s, and I did test my home. It was slightly elevated, and I'm one of those people that said, well, seems fine to me. Uh, I recently tested my home uh, last uh, fall. And I do have elevated levels. Uh, I'm over 10, actually. Um, and my question is, having lived here for 30 years, been breathing the radon, uh, I'm almost 60 years old. Uh, if now that I, if I remediate my residence in order to get the radon out of my home, am I doomed? Am I going to get lung cancer because I didn't do anything for 30 years? Or, or is there a possibility I can recover from this? All right, Ed, stay on the line because I have a question for you, too. Go ahead. Sure. Uh, yep. there's, there's a very good possibility you can recover from this, and there's actually it's a small probability you would get lung cancer anyway. I mean, most people that are exposed to radon don't get lung cancer. Most people that smoke cigarettes don't get lung cancer. But still, nonetheless, it is, it is our homes. It's carcinogenic, so we're still urging people to do the testing. Additionally, once you 
stop radon exposure, just like once you stop cigarette smoking, you have biological repair processes take place in the body. So it is absolutely, you know, advantageous to stop the smoking, do the test, and then move on, and you basically, time goes on, you get better and better and better. Hey, okay, now, Ed, here's what I wanted to ask you, and I'm, and you tell me if I'm wrong here. The tone of your question, are you, are you, were you kind of asking, uh, can I get away with this without having to pay for it? Is that what you're asking? Well, I, I guess, <laughs> yeah, I guess what I was asking was if, if I don't do anything now, it, you know, how can I phrase that? I, I yeah, understand. My, my, yeah, my, my concern, my, my concern was, have I damaged myself to the extent for thirty years that living here for another ten years is that going to make any difference, or should I even deal with it? You're mm-hmm. right. Spend the money. Yeah, I, I, I'm only joking fair, fair with question. you. I, I'm, I'm only joking with you because I think a lot of us are in the same situation just from what we've discussed here earlier today. Hey, well, thank you very much for your call and take care of that. You know, the worst case scenario is someone who smokes in their radon-infested basement. So, you know, it's bad to smoke to begin with, but, uh, you know, if you're smoking downstairs, stay away from it. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. We're talking about radon here in Pennsylvania. January is a National Radon Action Month. Our guest today, Pennsylvania Secretary of the Department of Environmental Resources, John Quigley, and Robert Lewis, Radiation Protection Program Supervisor in the Radon Division of DEP. 1-800-729-7532 is the phone number to call if you have a question or a comment. You can write an email, send an email, I should say, to smarttalk at witf.org. Also, leave a question or comment on WITF's Facebook page. Again, that phone number is 1-800-729-7532. Before we take more phone calls, I just want to clarify some of the terms that you've used. Remediation, Secretary, what is that? Remediation is very simply the process of removing radon from your home and it's very simple to do and I'll, I'll speak as a, as a property owner and somebody who just went through this uh, last last fall uh, after the test came back and showed that I was way above the action level uh, I consulted again with the information that DEP has on its website dep.pa.gov or you can actually get this on the phone 1-800-23-RADON uh, we maintain a list of certified mitigation companies companies that are they should that, be certified they should be certified they, just like every lab a, a testing facility should be certified uh, companies that test in your home should be certified and the, the folks who fix this stuff in your home should be certified so you've got to look for a certified uh, company uh, consulted a company made an appointment the individual came over looked at the house took about 10 minutes he said i'll give you a quote i had the quote by email that afternoon and like three days later he was on site uh, it, it cost me uh, about eleven hundred dollars uh, typically the mitigation systems can range between eight and eleven hundred dollars or so uh, so it's not not necessarily all that cheap, but frankly, when you consider the possible consequences, it's a really good investment. At the end of the day, it, it took probably maybe three hours uh, to install. It's basically a fan and a, a series of plastic pipes that vent the gas outside. So it's, it creates a negative pressure and it just sucks the gas out of the house and, and vents it safely into the atmosphere. So it's it's very easy. It's no muss, no fuss. Again, the, the repair, uh, the installation only takes two or three hours. How do they keep it from coming back in? The, the fan runs continuously. Oh, so it's permanent. It's permanent. It's, it's permanent. permanant. Okay, eight to $1,100. <laughs> that's not cheap. I mean, that's when you describe something as odorless, tasteless, you can't see it. 
you know, I'm sure there are a lot of people out there who have said, well, you know, I don't think I have a problem here. I can't see it. I can't taste it. I can't smell it. Eight to 1,100 hours, that's pretty steep. Uh, 1,700 cancer deaths in Pennsylvania and 20,000 nationwide are pretty steep as well. Uh, this is about protecting your life. It's about protecting your family. Uh, if you have kids, uh, kids are more susceptible uh, because their systems are, are still developing. They're, they kind of absorb this stuff uh, even more readily than adults do. So it's uh, what price do you put on your health and, and that of your family? It's, uh, for me, it was a no-brainer. Let's go back to the phone. Gary is in Juniata County. Gary, you're on the air. Scott, my head is spinning. I, I just, um, I, I don't understand. I worked at University of Pennsylvania in the medical school for two for two years trying to get in medical school, and, and the point was I worked with radioactive microsphere most of that time, and I had to wear a little badge and whatever. And this whole idea of this gas is in your basement, somehow gets seeps through your floor and stays only in the floor area. I, I just, and by the way, my son just went through this with buying a house. He had the test done. The one lab came back. It was definitely above that level. It was $3,500 to put that system in. Basically, they punched a hole in the cement floor, put a piece of PVC pipe in there, put a piece of PVC pipe all the way up past the roof and put a fan in it for $3,500. I'm thinking that looked like about $80 worth of materials. But the thing was, I went and spent the money to have it retested, and it came back with a t before the thing was done with a totally different value. So, I mean, I don't understand why this boogeyman, 1700, can they find the areas that are the, the highest percentage of lung cancer deaths in Pennsylvania and try to work backwards and see that, yes, indeed, we do think a percentage of those were right on. You just can't make the 1700 people and say that that's an accurate number. I would believe it would be geographic, and I would also believe that somehow percentage-wise they'd be able to say, well, in these areas we think at least you know 5%, 6%, 7% of the lung cancer deaths are radon-related. Thank okay, you Gary, very much. Thank you very much for your call. He brought up a couple points couple, there. A couple but, points. <laughs> but he does, you know, we're doing research. Do we have evidence that there are more lung cancer deaths in areas where... Uh, like central Pennsylvania, like Berks County, you mentioned uh, the Reading Prong, that there are more lung cancer deaths or lung cancers in those areas. Uh, Scott, unfortunately, that does not exist. There's just a very complicated epidemiological um, study there, and they've not seen that anywhere in the country where that. You have, a, you have various mobility with people, and people, some people smoke, some people don't. So it's a very difficult thing to tease out, and we have not seen that to be the case. Mm -hmm. But that would seem to be... I mean, you say it's complicated, but that would seem to be a fairly easy piece of research if you just see in those areas more lung cancers. Well, you, you, know, you have to look at how long have people have been there. Have they lived there for their years. How, where did they live prior to? What's the, the, when, you know, the smoking patterns? What was the radon in, in previous homes? So like I say, it's just a very difficult problem to solve that. Mm. It would be great if we had those statistics because we just one more piece in the puzzle, but we don't. The Secretary, you could tell Gary was skeptical. Well, yeah, there's, we run into skeptics on a lot of fronts uh, in, in the work that we do, uh, and particularly you see it in areas of environmental protection. Uh, at the end of the day, our job is to, to provide the best available information, uh, use the best available science, uh, rely on experts, and certainly EPA it, it has done studies, and they've given us estimates of uh, the number of Pennsylvanians that die every year because of exposure to radon. Uh, at some point, it's you have to ask yourself, what's my level of risk tolerance? Uh, we take this very seriously. I take it very seriously. Uh, 
this is a, a real public health threat. Uh, it, folks can believe that or not, but it's our job to protect public health, and it's our mission uh, to make sure this information is brought to the public's attention. And we have an obligation. Uh, whether or not folks want to take that advice is up to them, uh, but we have an obligation to make sure that they are aware that this is a real threat to the, their health and the, and the health of their family. Let's get a call from uh, Faith in Lancaster. Faith, you're on the air. Good morning, gentlemen. Uh, thank you for taking my call. Yes, you're welcome. With all of this uh, concern about costs, let me just real quickly tell you my situation, and it may be an alternative for some others. I did testing in 2002, and it was 2.2. I repeated it in January of 2013, 4.0, this PCI slash L. You you know what that is. Now, that's right on the cusp. So I went online and found out through Kansas State University, it's the National Radon Program Services, there's a long-term test from three, I think it's up to 12 months that you can do. For $25, you can get that. So I did get that. Now I've put it up. I'm going to do it for six months, and I wondered, uh, since it's right on the cusp, that 4.0, if you feel that's a good plan. I forget the caller's name, Scott. Uh, this is, who, who Margaret? Now it's, who? Faith, F-A-I-T-H. Sorry, because I, I clicked out of your uh, the the message I got. Sorry, Faith. Uh, well, Faith in Lancaster. Well, Faith, uh, you're, you're right on target. With that uh, advice, um, you've really uh, been doing your research because that's a really good way to follow up, and she may be potentially saving some money. These lower-end values there, sometimes near the guideline, sometimes even maybe four to eight, borderline, as I would call them, to follow up with a long-term test like she suggests, which are available for $25 or so, is an excellent way to get a better, more conclusive value, and then you can make your final decision on a year-long test. Actually, right, that's the only thing you. I would the only thing I would suggest. Information, Scott, for your listeners. Pardon me. Would you like this uh, toll-free number and uh, email address for your listeners who uh, would like to do this? I'll tell you what. I'm going to put you on hold and have you talk to one of our producers. We'll put it on our website. Okay. All right. Thank All you right, very I'll put much. Put you on hold. Thanks, Faith. The only, if I can make one comment on her her strategy, Scott, instead of going for six months, I'd go a year. Okay. Because, once again, you have this variability. Depending on what six months you do, you could potentially bias your results one way, high or low. So you go to a year, you get the actual annual average concentration. We have a call, and it sounds like there's some confusion about how to read the test. Six years ago, this is Tanya. Six years ago, I tested our house, and the testing was 21 PCI slash L. What is that? That's 21 picocuries per liter. Okay. We had a radon mitigation system put in. The state this past year gave out free radon tests, and I, uh, again, tested. The test showed a level of 14 even with the mitigation. Thinking I may not have tested correctly, I tested just in the last two weeks. It came back 7.6 with a 96-hour test. What do I do? Well, it sounds like me to me like the, the system you had installed is just not working correctly. And that is not, uh, not uncommon. Those systems don't necessarily always work the first time they're put in. 
So I would get back in touch with the contractor who installed the system and say, hey, my levels are still above the EPA guideline. Come over here and take a look and see what you have to do. Sometimes they have to change a fan, add an additional suction point, do some additional sealing. So there's a number of things that they can do in addition to the initial installation. And I would imagine that's free of charge since... uh, I mean, I can't say that for sure, but I would hope so. It depends on what the warranty and the guarantee says. It, you know, if the proper warranty says I'll get you related on levels below four for $1,000, then yes, indeed it is. If there's no guarantee or warranty, which we don't require, then maybe they, they would charge. So it depends. Why don't you require but, that? Well, it's just not something we have in the regulations. Yeah, we just so I get, guess that was a, you know, a business decision. We didn't think we should be impinging upon the business community. So it's never been required by DEP, at least. Yeah. What do you think, you know, Secretary? You want to... I know nobody likes regu- more regulations. Well, well yeah, the, the, it's real, real simple, Scott, to say, oh, we need that regulation. It's a lot more difficult to actually get a regulation passed in this state. What, uh, but, you mean in the legislature? Well, they, they ultimately have some say in, in the matter, and there have been some other efforts uh, uh, through other means to try to prevent regulation ha- from happening. So, it, yeah, in, it happens in Pennsylvania. Yeah, well, I, I, <laughs> the other thing to that, Scott, also is, you know, when somebody's looking for a service, they should obviously be looking for a contractor that's right. going to give them a warranty. So, right, yeah. right. And, and I'm not, don't get me wrong, I'm not advocating for any more regulations for anyone out there who, who wants to say, Scott, you're, regu- you're recommending that or something or endorsing that. I'm just I'm just joking, okay? Nancy in Lancaster uh, is on the line. Nancy, you're on the air. Uh, yes, hi. Um, I'm calling with a concern because my husband and I, um, back in 2009 in the summer, bought a house here in Lancaster, and we had it radon tested. I mean, we did the, the short-term radon test, and the results indicated that it was um, suggested that we have mitigation. I guess it was somewhere on the cusp, and I don't remember the exact figures, but that was the the word back. Um, We knew that we didn't have any funds at that point to do anything about it, and we still don't. So I'm looking at, I've written down the figures that have been put out. I I have from 800 to 3,500, so I guess it goes all over the place, but um, I'm wondering is there any source of assistance to have mitigation done? All right. Thank you very much for your call. Very good question. And unfortunately, the answer to that, Scott, is no. There's no really funding available. That that value of 3500 the one gentleman mentioned, that's very unusual cost for typical. John, as John said, 800 to to $1,000, $1,500 is much more typical cost for the installations. What would third? What would 3500 involve? Well, it's possibly you might have a lot of stru- different structural zones in the home where you had a crawl space, maybe you had a slab on grade plus a basement. That could possibly cause something that high, but that's that's atypical. Yeah, that sounds like tearing up the whole basement just, just for 3500 yeah. All right, let's go to Derek in LeMoyne. Derek, you're on the air. Hi, thank you for my call. Uh, I'm a real estate agent in Central PA, and uh, I'll be quick. I just wanted to, any buyer that's buying a house is going to check the radon. And if it's high, the seller's going to have to do the radon system. You know, whether you believe if it's, if it's dangerous or not, everybody's going to have to do it. Um, so it's, it's in any seller's best interest just to go ahead and test it and put the system in if they find that it's a little high. Do you actually have uh, buyers and sellers asking the question? Uh, yeah, every time we have, to, we have to go over what inspections uh, a buyer should or, or can do when they buy a home. And every, well, I won't say every, 90% maybe, or at least of my buyers, elect to do a radon test, a general home inspection, uh, and a wood 
insect inspection. So radon is, is usually always in there. Um, costs the buyer about 100 bucks for the test. The same inspection company that does the rest of the inspections does it. Um, and then, you, you know, you get your results back. And if it's anything above 4.0, uh, mitigation system has to be done, and it usually falls on the seller. Mm-hmm. Okay, and so- banks also won't loan. If you're getting a certain kind of loan, they won't loan if, if you elected to do the test. Then they want to see the results. And if the results are high, they won't let you buy the house if it's high. So it's just part of the inspection process that uh, you make sure that the roof is safe and plumbing and all that. It's just part of it. Correct. Okay. All right. Thank you very much for your call. In fact, we have someone who experienced that firsthand. Lori is in Mannheim. Lori, you're on the air. Yes, hi. Thanks for taking my call. It's funny this gentleman is talking about uh, one of the things that I wanted to mention, too. Uh, You had a gentleman on the phone earlier who said, well, he got away with not doing it, and what about his health, and what if he lived there another 10 years? We lived in Jacobus in York County for 37 years, and a number of years ago, our test also was right on the cusp, and we let it go. Well, that was kind of a foolish thing to do because last year, uh, in 2000, well, 2015, we had our house up on the market there to move to Mannheim, and the people refused to buy the house if we didn't get a radon test done. And, of course, with winter, it, it, it blew our minds. It was so high, and we had to have the mitigation done. So not only did we pay for the mitigation cost, but we never got the health use of it. (laughs) (laughs) So anyone, if, you know, that gentleman thinks he may live in his house another 10 years, get it done now, because otherwise you'll be doing it for someone else's health and not your own. (laughs) You know, and I, I, the one quest, and it's funny, in Jacobus, we had three younger gentlemen who did smoke, but it's a very high radon area and they all died before their 70th birthdays of lung cancer so they had the double whammy of the radon and the smoking but i have a quick quick question okay um now that we live in Mannheim, we're in a uh, 55 and over community our home does not have the basement we're slab on grade does that have anything to do with radon is there something we should be doing with a house that doesn't even have a basement? Hey, that's a very good question. Thank you very much for your call. Yeah, good good question. There's two things that I want to mention on this particular call. There's one, slab on grade, full basement, crawl space, all can have, they're all still in contact with the soil, which is where the source is, so they still all have potential to have radon problems. So right. I have, can I inter- interrupt you sure, for just yeah. one minute? Because we have one a caller that's related. I'm not going to be able to take any more calls because uh, we are going to move on to our second segment in the program. But this gentleman said he has a dirt uh, floor basement uh, as a, any kind of a potential for radon with that. Oh, by all means, and in that potential case, it's a little different. You wouldn't be testing the basement if it's if it's a non-livable space like that with a dirt basement. Then you'd be testing the floor immediately above, which usually is the first floor. But if I may, Scott, getting back to the the previous caller there, right. that there's two issues here with the testing. One, the most important, obviously, is your health, and the second one, obviously, is resale. And that's what this, you know, caller brought up. So you might as well, if you're not going to test for your health, test test for your resale. Because when you're ready, ready to sell that house, as the, as the realtor said, it's going to most likely be need to be tested anyway. We um, have a caller who, again, I can't get on the air, but I wanted to ask his uh, question. Dustin in Middletown says he lives 10 miles from Three Mile Island, has home has owned the home since the 1940s, or the 
Yeah, he's owned the home since the 1940s. Would Radon be any different because of the proximity to the nuclear station? Yeah, no, no association. None. Just radon is due to the geology where your house is located. Okay, even though there is more radiation nearby, that necessarily it doesn't get into the ground. Well, no, I'm just saying the radon is not associated with Three Mile Island. Right. Right. Okay, but I'm, Mike, his question is, because there's more radiation in a nuclear plant, would there necessarily be more radiation in the ground? No. 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 That, that radiation in the nuclear plant should be staying in the nuclear plant, basically. It should be, yeah. yes. <laughs> well, gentlemen, thank you very much. we got a lot of phone calls, a lot of questions in. Uh, Secretary, if you would, repeat those numbers and in where our listeners can get uh, more information. 1-800-23-RADON, R-A-D-O-N. And the DEP website is dep.pa.gov, G-O-V. And we will put that on our website, witf.org. Pennsylvania Secretary of the Department of Environmental Resources, John Quigley, Robert Lewis, Radiation Protection Program Supervisor, Radon Division, DEP. Thank both of you for being with us today. Thank you. Thank you, Scott. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. Do you recognize the name Frederick Russell Burnham? Based on his exploits in the American West and in Africa, you should. Gunplay, ambushes, secret missions, countless narrow escapes from death, assassinations performed and thwarted, great fortunes made and lost. That's how publicists describe Burnham's life. Joining us on the program today is Steve Kemper, author of the new book just published this week, A Splendid Savage, The Restless Life of Frederick Russell Burnham. Mr. Kemper, welcome to the program. Thank you, and thanks for that great introduction. I'd, I'd like to use that myself. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, your publicist came up with some of it, so I, I just it's not very often that I use the language in a press release, but uh, I thought that after reading the book that it covered it pretty well. All right, Fred Burnham was a superhero before the word was even dreamed up. If you had to describe him in 60 seconds or less, how would you? Well, um, I'd say he was an adventurer, a uh, frontiersman, a imperialist soldier, um, a prospector, a, a seeker after the big bonanza, and a seeker after action, world action, historical action. We'll discuss many of his exploits here. In fact, we're not going to have enough time in 20 minutes to do all that, but why isn't he more well-known? Well, you know, it's that's what happens with history. There's so many important people uh, that are important in their own ages, and then they get swallowed up and forgotten. And uh, Burton was a—he was a small player on the world stage, but he seemed to be everywhere. At the, you know, everywhere there was action, he seemed to show up. So he didn't do anything that was uh, magnificent. He just did a lot of incredible things that nobody else had done, and that I don't think any single man that I know of did in one lifetime. Well, I don't know if I'd agree that uh, he didn't do anything magnificent because, uh, as you're right, I mean, uh, just reading the book, uh, I I don't know if there's any characters out there like him. Uh, No, I'm not going to follow this chronologically completely, but let's go back to even his childhood. He was born on a Lakota Sioux Indian reservation in 1861. At 13 months, he escaped death or capture. Well, it was it's a Winnebago reservation. That Wikipedia says Lakota Sioux. I discovered it was Winnebago, um, but and it was 15 months old. I'm sorry, I'm a journalist. I can't make oh. these minor corrections. But you're right. He, the, the Lakota um, War of 1862 caught his parents in it, and 
Burnham's mother saved him from incineration by running away and stashing him in a, a, a shock of green corn. And that's when the, when the Sioux burned the cabin, the, gorn, the green corn stalks didn't burn. And when she came back the next day, he was still there alive. <laughs> that's the way he started life. And that was just a precursor of uh, the dangers to come. Uh, his father was not the swashbuckling figure that his son was, was he? No, his father was a, a preacher. He had two degrees, undergraduate degree and a divinity degree. He was a very well-educated man who decided to go to the frontier and save heathen souls. Um, he couldn't make any money doing that, so when he got married, he became a farmer. Um, uh, he was evidently a, an evangelical Christian, a uh, far-breathing sort of guy. Hey, hey, I'm going to have to interrupt you for just a second. For some reason, okay, let me, let me turn this down a little bit. Maybe to, we're, we're getting some static. Can you hear me? Okay, I'm gonna. We're gonna call you back though, because all of a sudden uh, you, your first uh, first few minutes were fine, and now all of a sudden we have static in your line. So we're gonna call you back in just a minute. Okay. Great. All right. This is one of the things you run into when uh, when you do these things by phone, and uh, you know that's not a cell phone, but yeah, if we could, uh, we'll we'll make the call back. But uh, let me just tell you a little bit about this while we're we're calling uh, Steve Kemper back. The name of the book is A Splendid Savage: The Restless Life of Frederick Russell Burnham. And as I said, um, yeah, go ahead and call him, Michaela. Um, we. Uh, uh, you know, this is. I'm surprised that uh, you know Fred Burnham is not more well known uh, because of the, some of the exploits. And hopefully, we can get him back on the phone here in just a minute, and uh, you can we, we can describe some of these things. But uh, you know, what we're going to talk be talking about is um, you know when he was in the American West after surviving at uh, 15 months old uh, that uh, Sioux uh, that Sioux invasion where the cornfield was burned, but he was in the the green uh, uh, was in the green corn. Is he there? Okay, let's try now. Steve, are you there? I'm here. Okay, for some reason we still got a little bit of static, but I think uh, it's 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 passable. All right, uh, we were you were talking a little bit about his father. Yeah, his father was a began as a preacher, has two degrees, a divinity degree and an undergraduate degree, and decided to take all that education and go west to save heathen souls in Minnesota on the frontier. But he couldn't make a living, so he became a farmer. And uh, after that, couldn't make a living because he got injured, and so the family moved to California. So they moved to California, Southern California, to the small town at that time of Los Angeles. Uh, Now, his father died, but Fred Burnham, at the age of, was it 12 or 13? 12. At at the age of 12, decided, uh, because his family was moving back to the Midwest, at the age of 12, decided to stay in Los Angeles. Now, that would be unheard of today. Why did he decide to stay, and what did he do? How did he survive? Well, he decided to stay, I think, for two reasons. His excuse was that his mother had borrowed money to take the family back um, to, uh, to Iowa. But he really wanted to stay because he was independent and wanted an adventure, and he found it right away. He became a rider for um, Western Union, working 16 hours a day. And then he paid off the debt, and then he became a hunter for freight camps, um, camping in the mountains all over uh, California. 
At the age of 14, he was a hunter supplying meat to uh, the people you're mentioning in, in the mountains. So, you know, just think about your first job. Uh, this guy, this was not even his first job. This is probably his second or third job where he's supplying meat. Now, what changed his life, though, was he learned how to become a scout. He learned how to scout. Talk about that. Well, he, he apprenticed himself to these old scouts, old frontiersmen who had, who had um, helped to settle the West. And he was fascinated by this. He was also fascinated in Minnesota. He did, uh, hung around with a lot of Indian children in Minnesota. And that's where he got the bug to become a scout. And it's important for, it, for Burnham, it was not just this romantic idea. It was a discipline. It was rigorous. It was um, something you devoted your life to. Uh, later on, journalists said that um, they had never seen anybody so devoted to a craft. One guy compared him to Paderewski, the pianist. He said he's put in as much time as Paderewski has um, on his skill. And uh, he, he astonished people with what he could see and learn and tell you just by walking through a landscape. Now, he turned up in places like Tombstone, Arizona. This is when the Earps were there. The gunfight at Oak, uh, OK Corral was, I think, a little bit later uh, after he was there. But he was in other places in the West fighting Apache Indians and being involved in range wars. Yeah, he, it's hard. This stuff is um, it's a little bit obscure because there's no written records about it except his own. Um, I found some references in newspapers to certain things that occur in his memoir. He wrote two memoirs. But it's, uh, it's a little bit shadowy, so um, I handle it uh, you know, contextually. But he was involved in the Tonto Basin feud, as the Pleasant Valley Wards is a, another name for it, which is the bloodiest feud in U.S. history, far more than the famous one in Kentucky. And uh, involved in that, involved in smuggling, in tombstone, involved in scouting um, against the Apaches and the outbreaks there. Um, he was a prospector. He was evidently worked as a, as a deputy sheriff, bringing in outlaws, using his skills as a scout. So he, and he worked as a so-called shotgun messenger on Wells Fargo wagons, you know, guarding bullion. So he kind of did it all. Well, I want to talk about the Apache part of it, though. Uh, he wrote and uh, told many, many people throughout the years, even well into uh, later in his life, that he had so much respect for the Apaches, especially their scouting abilities. Yeah, they were his paragons uh, for scouting because there was there was no group of people like them that he had ever seen and ever would see, in fact, for the rest of his life. They they could go through a landscape and eat, find things to eat, find water. They were ruthless as, as opponents. Uh, they were guerrilla fighters. And they were a small people, uh, nomadic. They had to be to survive. And they terrorized large areas of the West with just a, a small group of people. So they were also in superb condition. They wouldn't follow any leader who wasn't as brave and smart and disciplined as they all were. So all those things for Burnham were um, ideals for scouts. 
You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. We're speaking with Steve Kepper, author of the new book, A Splendid Savage, The Restless Life of Frederick Russell Burnham. It was just published this week. A great read. If you have a question or comment, maybe you've heard of uh, Fred Burnham, maybe you haven't. 1-800-729-7532 or send an email to smarttalk at WITF.org. Fred Burnham also was a prospector. He was uh, constantly looking for gold and other minerals. Now, uh, you know, he goes, this is like throughout his life he does this, but in the West especially. Yeah, well, he he got the gold fever, as he called it, um, which everybody had out there. There were a lot of guys wandering around the West with a burrow and some coffee and beans and bacon and a shovel. Um, and Fred was one of them, and in fact, he had to do that because he wanted to get married at one point, and his future father-in-law said, well, you, you aren't marriage material at this point. You better come back with some money. So he had to go into the desert, and he found the gold mine eventually, which allowed him to marry his wife, Blanche. Yeah, he did marry uh, Blanche, and they settled down in uh, Southern California, but he was restless the whole time he was there. Yeah, for um, one of the great love stories, I mean, they were totally devoted to each other. The letters between them are, are, are lovely, really, and and yet he could not stay at home. <laughs> he, he had to be off. He had to be going, looking for action, looking for money, and often Blanche went with him but because um, that's the only way she'd get to see her husband, but boy, Fred could not stay home. Now, he wasn't at home, as you write, uh, for the birth of any of his children. Yeah, that's true. He was always off trying to make a buck, trying to fight somebody. Mm. Yeah. Uh, now, as you said, he was uh, restless when uh, Burnham was restless when he and uh, Blanche and really uh, both families, both of their families uh, were settled near Southern California. But finally, he he had been reading, th- he had read throughout his life and heard other people talk about Africa. And he decided to go to Africa. Now, think about this. This is in the 1890s. This is not something that it was easy just to, you know, buy a ticket on an airplane and get on the plane, fly 15 hours to Africa. This was, you know, riding a boat, uh, you know, settling in, completely different culture, no communication like we have today. An American going to Africa, that was very unusual. What motivated him to want to go to Africa? Well, you know, motivations are always complicated. I think there are a couple things. For one thing, he was he was disgusted with the Gilded Age, with the corruption uh, that he saw everywhere: big money, big banks controlling everything, squeezing out, squeezing off opportunities for everybody else. So that was one thing. Second thing was that he felt like the West had become tame, and uh, he wanted he wanted a frontier. And third, he was very excited by Cecil Rhodes's uh, ambitions to build a huge new nation in southern Africa, a white nation, of course. And uh, so he thought, well, I'll go there. I might get rich. I might be able to help shape a new country's existence, and it sounds exciting. Cecil Rhodes, uh, what many people today, at least here in America, would think of, or his name associated with, is Rhodesia. Uh, And, you know, that's the country that was formed by what he was was looking to do. Uh, But you know, war came, just not just one, but we'll talk about the, the numerous times when war came. But war came after uh, Burnham and Blanche, his wife, and actually his first son, Frederick, had uh, moved to, to southern Africa. And he became a scout. 
for the British. Talk about some of his exploits because, again, this sounds like something out of Indiana Jones with some of the exploits that he had in Africa. Yeah, as soon as he got to Africa, in fact, he was he was about 100 miles away from the fort that had been established, one of the forts that had been established in um, what became Rhodesia when war broke out because the Endebelis, which is the, which was the uh, the tribe who owned the land there, who had always been there, were very warlike. They were similar to the Apaches in their warrior culture. They got annoyed with all these white people moving in, and there, a war began. And Burnham happened to get involved in what is, in Rhodesian history, one of the most famous events. It's similar to Custer, um, Custer and the Alamo. It's called the Shangani Patrol. And it was very similar to those two American events. It was a small group of men who got wiped out by a native army. Burnham and two other men managed to get out. They were supposed to bring the main force back to help these men survive. Um, and so he's, he went down in Rhodesian history as one of these survivors, which was controversial, by the way, as you know from the book. And then the... The whites thought that everything was smooth and peaceful, and yet, of course, it wasn't. The, the Indabellis were resentful. They rose up again. There was a second war, a second revolt. And in this war, Burnham um, was assigned to assassinate the, the chief priest of the god, the native god called And uh, he took on this mission, which he thought was a death mission, but he accomplished it. He killed the high priest in his cave. And uh, that was a mistake. It turned out to be a mistake. Burnham thought that it helped end the war, but it turned out that this priest was neutral because military intelligence was poor. They didn't understand the native religious culture. But nevertheless, there he is at the center of history again. So uh, became famous because of that. The British newspapers ate it up. He was uh, many, many stories and became famous as the American scout. Well, we only have about two minutes left, and there's so much more to talk about with Fred Burnham. Just quickly, uh, you know, he was given land as a reward for his service. Uh, He was prospecting and exploring, not home very often as usual. He went back to the United States, almost became a rough rider with Teddy Roosevelt. He prospected for gold during the Klondike Gold Rush, went back to Africa as chief of scouts for the British. Now, this is an American who was chief of scouts for uh, the British, went back to the United States where struck oil in California. So he became wealthy uh, when uh, when that happened. I, I just and he also inspired uh, the Boy Scouts out there, even to the point of the hat that he wore, the Stetson hat that he wore and uh, his his uh, handkerchief, the, the neckerchief that he wore that, that was taken for Boy Scouts. I, I, we only have a minute or so left and there's too much to cover in in just that time. Uh, Steve, how did you get in, in how did you get interested in in Burnham? I was doing a, a story for Smithsonian magazine about hyenas. So as part of my research, I was researching big game hunters and their attitudes towards hyenas. And I came across um, a reference to the famous American scout Frederick Russell Burnham, who knew more woodcraft than anybody I'd ever seen. That was, this was a quote from Frederick Courtney Salou, who was a famous African hunter and explorer. I'd never heard of Burnham. The name stuck in my mind. And uh, 
that's the way these things happen. They they rise up from the muck, won't let you go, and so you have to start <laughs> looking into them. Steve Kepper is the author of the new book, A Splendid Savage, The Restless Life of Frederick Russell Burnham. A great read. Mr. Kepper, thank you very much for being with us today. Thank you for a great interview. Thank you. Coming up on uh, tomorrow's program, the U.S. Supreme Court decision this week on mandatory life sentences for juveniles. We'll explore that decision tomorrow on Smart Talk.